0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, David Kunzman, and today we'll be talking with Carson Bay about his new book, Biblical Heroes in Classical Culture and Christian Late Antiquity. Carson is a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Jewish Studies at the University of Bern in Switzerland, and I hope you enjoy the interview for today. So we usually like to start our interviews by asking our guests just about their background and how did they come to write their current work. So, Carson, how did you come to write Biblical Heroes in Classical Culture in Christian late antiquity?
2: Uh, yeah, that this is, a, this is an interesting question. Um, so as a PhD student at Florida State University, my dissertation advisor, David Levinson, um, just happens to be probably the the world's leading expert on the Latin Josephus tradition, which is to say the the Latin translations of the Greek texts of Flavius Josephus and those Latin translations were made by Christian authors between the fourth and sixth centuries. Um, and so the the textual history of those works is highly complicated but, largely ignored within scholarship because they're not um quote unquote primary sources that you know they're not written by Josephus, they're translations. Um and so because of that because of that aspect of David's expertise, um I mean, he, he knows he knows all things, is, is something that I say. But because he was a Latin Josephus expert, I sort of got introduced to this text called De Excidio Hierus Limitano, or On the Destruction of Jerusalem, um, what I call pseudo And one thing I discovered as a doctoral student is that very few people paid attention to this text. It wasn't read much, very little was written on it. Um, and it was kind of, uh, kind of halfway dismissed as sort of a, sort of a derivative work of of Josephus's. Um, and, and so as I started to look into the text, um, as you know, in the first instance, as part of my coursework for a Latin Josephus seminar, and then later on doing research and trying to find a good dissertation topic, I realized wow, this text is really interesting and there's a lot that could be said about it and no one's really said it. Um, and so, uh, I ended up writing my dissertation on one chapter of the work. Uh, so it was very narrow and focused because the chapter has so much in it. And that was really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, you know, my dissertation was my first sort of like monograph-length plunge into Deixisio, and then this this book is is a different project where I wanted to do a more sort of comprehensive study of the text. And um, anyway, this is this is a longer answer than your question than your question merits. So that's I, I was sort of introduced into it because of who my doctor father um, is, and because the text was um you know has not been very popular amongst scholars so
1: in the subtitle um you mentioned pseudo hegesippus and uh i guess the reader would wonder if this relates to the historical hegesippus and why did uh how how did that term come about
2: in scholarship yeah, so this is a great question. So the term actually comes from manuscripts. So beginning in the ninth century in the Latin manuscripts of Excidio, of which there are many, um, but beginning in the ninth century, the text becomes more and more to be attributed to uh, Hegesippus, often Agassipi uh, in the in the genitive. Um, and this seems to be, uh, a, a case in which scribes associated the author of this work with the second century Greek writing, Hegesippus, who's an important source of Eusebius and his church history, who wrote a five book hupum nemata. So he wrote a five book work. And of course, *De Excidio* is a five book work. And he also wrote about the time of the Acts, uh, uh, the, the time of the apostles um, and and Acts, um, and he wrote about, um, you know, goings-on in Judea at that time, um, and he also seems to have been a, a Jewish Jewish convert, and so it seems that scribes sort of made that association. Um, at the same time, there is one particular manuscript where you can see where the word Josephus, so the Latin for Josephus, used to be written, but that has been Amended to read Hegesippus, and so orthographically in the in the sort of front matter of the work, as it were, the manuscript tradition shows us that there was sort of a switch where this work was attributed to Josephus, and then it comes comes to be attributed to a Hegesippus. So there is no historical Hegesippus associated with De Excidio. There's, I mean. it's very unlikely that the author was named Hegesippus And and if he was, that's just a complete random accident. Um, And for the first, you know, half millennium of the work's existence, it seems to have been attributed to Josephus. Um, Whether or not scribes and readers actually thought Josephus wrote the work is is a question that's up for some debate. Um, And so this is something about which... um, or over which Richard Matthew Pollard and I disagree. Richard Matthew Pollard being one of the most um, prominent scholars writing on De Excidio today at the University of Quebec, um, who's done a lot on the work. And so he thinks that these early authors thought that De Excidio was a work of Josephus. And my idea is that uh, it's very reasonable to assume that these authors uh, might call De Excidio the work of Josephus um in the same way that someone might call a you know uh a latin paraphrase of homer's iliad uh, a work of homer you know knowing that homer didn't write it but also understanding that it's a homeric story um so anyway that's a very long answer to your question but the short answer is there is no historical Hegesippus. it seems to be sort of a conflation between um the historical Hegesippus who wrote on similar things and um, the, the orthographic similarities in Latin between the names for Josephus and Hegesippus.
1: I know in the book you sort of criticize uh, the, the, scho- the scholarly enterprise of fixating on trying to find authorship of, of the sort of Deixitio why do you think scholarship is so fixated on trying to find the author behind the work?
2: Oh, yeah, uh, this is a good question. And I, I, I hope that so I, I wouldn't criticize that in the sense that I would say this is something we shouldn't do or this is a silly thing to do. I mean, of course, it's not. It's a very, very natural thing to do. I would say it's, it's impossible uh, because of the way our minds work Um it's impossible for us to come across a, a, an artifact, a human artifact, like a text, and not to ask who wrote this, when, why, where, all these detailed questions. Um, but so so the criticism I brought up is a criticism um, articulated by Michel Foucault and resurrected recently by, for example, Hindi Nyman, who's a prominent scholar of uh, Second Temple Judaism. Um, and so the criticism is, we tend to lean very heavily on those historical details when reading a text um, to the extent that it can really sort of shape our understanding of a text in ways that are not always um, helpful and or accurate. Um, in the case of a work like De Skidio, I think the real problem is that the fact that we don't, that we cannot easily associate it with an author, leads uh, leaves open this field of questions for scholarship, and those end up getting pursued to the detriment of the actual reading and discussion of the text itself. Um, so, ca- case in point here, the history of scholarship on De Excidio has been uh highly weighted towards trying to figure out who the author of the work was was it ambrose of milan you know scholars have argued about this and this is sort of one of the main things that scholars have argued about vis-a-vis de excidio then you have uh you know you have scholars suggesting other authors Isaac the Jew about whom we know almost nothing was sort of an acquaintance of Jerome and you know maybe he wrote it because it seems like certain features of the work point to to a Jewish convert author I mean these kinds of suggestions have very little um, to recommend them. Um, I mean, there are reasons for these suggestions. So when Albert, Albert Bell says Evagrius of Antioch maybe is the author of De Excidio, I mean, he gives some very compelling reasons for thinking so. But uh, the criticism, which again, is not a sharp, it, it, it's, a, it's a sort of um, just of criticism. Like, let's, let's get past this and read the text. The criticism is, um, that's an interesting question, but I don't think we can know and actually, I think much more interesting questions await us in the text itself. So all that's to say, um, despite the fact that we do not, and I think probably cannot know who the author of De Excidio was, nevertheless, we can learn a lot from the text. We can study the text in almost the same way we study the text. Um, we would study a text written by Ambrose or Augustine or Jerome to name three roughly contemporary Latin writing authors. Um, so that's, yeah, that's the that's the criticism as it were.
1: So getting to the actual work of D'Exitio, De could you just please unpack, I guess, the overall structure of the work and what do you think pseudo-hegesippus was trying to
2: accomplish by writing this work? Yes. Um, so it's, it's a five book work that basically follows the narrative arc of Josephus's Jewish war or the Bellum Judiacum. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with that, that basically tells the story of the, the, the second half of what's usually called the second temple period of Jewish history, the second temple period spanning from the, the, the construction of the second temple, the second Jewish temple that existed in Jerusalem, um, in the last quarter of the sixth century BCE up until 70 CE when that temple was destroyed by the Romans and of course has never been rebuilt since So de Excidio tells um, the the second half of that story beginning with the the infamous um, the infamous uh, rule in Judea of um, the Seleucid ruler Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes who to, to simplify things greatly, Basically, tried to um, do away with with Jewish culture and the religious cult um, for for various reasons, none of which were very good. Um, and so, video begins the story there, but then very quickly moves up to the first century of the Common Era, and most of the narrative is occupied with the last few years before the temple's destruction in 70 CE. So in particular, um, the story focuses on the four-year period of of what we usually call the Roman Jewish war from 66 to 70 CE, which ends with the destruction of Jerusalem and is sometimes sort of uh, conceptually um, continued for, for three or four more years until 74 CE when this great final battle what you know, didn't happen atop Mount Masada, where uh almost a thousand Jewish rebels were sort of holed up. And so that's that's sort of like the last big event uh of this of this clash between the Judeans or the Jews, that is to say, the inhabitants of, of the Roman province of Judea and the Romans. Um so De Excidio, um which means of the destruction, on the destruction of Jerusalem. It tells the story of this destruction of Jerusalem, and it gives a lot of backstory. Um, now, to the second part of your question, what do you think the author, whom I'm calling Pseudo-Hedgesippus, what do I think he was doing, or wh- what do I think he thought he was doing with the work? Luckily, the author kind of tells us this in the prologue so there's a short prologue to the work where the author basically says um so i previously wrote the story of the four books of the kingdoms uh, and which is to say first and second samuel and first and second kings the the historical books of the hebrew bible or the christian old testament um, and he said i also i, I also penned the race die of the maccabees so I, I wrote a history of the maccabean period and he says here i've i followed things all the way up to the destruction of the temple. And the reason he said he did this is because um, Josephus, Josephus in Latin, um, Josephus, he says, gives us a really good historical account, but he did not understand non-intellects. He did not understand the cause, the reason for Jerusalem's destruction um, and for for the author of De Excidio, um, the Christian author of De Excidio, the reason for this is sort of built into his Christian worldview. He would have, he would have said it was obvious, and, and that is Jerusalem was destroyed because the Jews rejected and crucified. There would be Messiah, Jesus Christ, and as a result, God rejected the Jews, He abandoned them in history. The temple's destruction, Jerusalem's destruction in 70 by the Romans is proof positive of that. And so um, not in so many words, but basically the author lays out that understanding in the short prologue to the work. And then you can trace throughout the work uh, a number of nods, some of them subtle, some of them not so subtle, to this understanding um so I think it's it's very safe to say that that is what the author understood himself to be doing in writing this work was basically updating the account of Josephus, which was historiographically very valuable and very well done, but which was uh, let's say theologically and philosophically incomplete because josephus um, as a not, you know as as not a Christian, didn't understand the the theological causality at work in this uh, sequence of historical events.
1: As pinned by a Christian, are there any Christian material in De Exidio, or is it just dealing with the material of uh, Josephus's war on the Jews?
2: Yeah, there is there there's a very little bit of Christian material in the work and, and that that's actually a very interesting fact. That's actually one of the primary reasons that I find it very difficult to imagine Ambrose of Milan, the, the famous bishop having penned this work, is because it is so unchristian for a Christian work just in terms of quantity and content. Um at the same time, at the work's very beginning um, in the prologue, once again, the author betrays himself as a Christian. So he, at the end of the prologue, he refers to, uh, the space Gentium, the hope of nations, which is, a, which is a Christian reference to Jesus Christ, um, attached to a prophecy in Genesis forty nine ten uh, about, uh, Judah, the tribe of Judah, the figure of Judah. Um, and, uh, Occasionally, occasionally through the narrative, you get these, you get these nods to the Christian perspective of the author. So, for example, you get, you get um, verbatim and or and elusive quotations of New Testament passages from the Gospels, from the Epistles. Um, at one point in Book Five, when he's describing the temple, the author refers to a to an idea of the Trinity that existed within the. The, the utensils and furniture that was inside the, the, the temple. Um, and so the author is not only Christian, but betrays himself this one time as a Trinitarian Christian, which isn't unusual, but it's interesting that it happens. Um, in, the, in 5.2, right at the beginning of book five, this is, the, this is a long chapter upon which I wrote my dissertation where the author talks to Jerusalem and and its inhabitants, the Jews, or almost talks at them, and sort of explains across fifteen hundred Latin words um, why Jerusalem was destroyed. The fact that it didn't have to be that way, but you know, this is what happens when you reject um, your would-be savior. And so, a number of times throughout that speech, the author, you know, explicitly uh, talks about um, talks about Jesus and uses. Kind of Christian theological language and this sort of supersessionist um, ideology in, in framing that. Um, and you have, you have a few other passages where that happens that happens as well. Toward the end of book five, you have some Christian material. Um, the, the last thing to say in this regard maybe is the only time where actual Christian characters appear in the work, is right in the middle of it. In uh, three point two, you have the this insertion of the of this uh, vignette that records the the martyrdoms of the apostles Peter and Paul, whom the author refers to as Doctores Christianorum, so de- doctors of the church, um, and. So there you get a really interesting story from the apocryphal Acts of Peter, where Peter has a showdown with his arch nemesis, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, who also appears in in Acts 8 in the New Testament. Um, And so you you get this version of this showdown where Peter basically embarrasses Simon. Simon happens to be a courtesan of the Emperor Nero, so Nero's really mad about this. And Peter um, and Paul end up dead at the end of that episode. But it's very interesting because nowhere else in the work, do Christian actors appear and and that narrative is not not really tied um, closely to the surrounding narrative so it's almost like it's inserted there for kind of a particular reason and this is actually the argument of um, chapter chapter 5 in the book is that the, the insertion of this martyrdom story is designed to um, Contrast with this story of uh, Matthias in five twenty two one, who's portrayed as like a non martyr, um, to to show that uh, there are legitimate martyrs and illegitimate martyrs in this same period. And the legitimate martyrs were these Christian leaders, and the illegitimate martyrs were Jews like Matthias who got killed because they made bad decisions. Um, Anyway, so that's a, that, that's a long answer to a simple question, but, but yes, occasionally we have evidence of the author's Christian perspective, um, but it's, it's um, surprisingly sparse given the size of the work.
1: And I know Josephus doesn't, mentioned, doesn't mention the historical Jesus in the War of the Jews, only maybe in the antiquities. Is there any reference to the historical Jesus at all?
2: Uh, yes. So the the passage you reference from uh, Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, chapter eighteen, um, sections sixty, sixty four and sixty five, according to the modern sections, um, this is this is called uh, usually the Testimonium Flavianum, and it's uh, it's a much discussed passage in Josephus. These days, most scholars assume that it's actually a, it's a later insertion into the text made by someone uh, like Eusebius of Caesarea. Um, but that the Testimonium Flavianum, uh, in, in, in a slightly different form, does indeed appear in De Excidio. It, it's one of several passages that De Excidio takes from Josephus's Jewish Antiquities, the Jewish War, which Josephus wrote thirty years earlier, around seventy-five CE. Is, is of course the primary source for De Excidio. Um but the but the Jewish Antiquities is also a source and. Um, so that's the, in 212, in De Excadio two twelve one, the author inserts the testimonium flavianum um, with, with some surrounding discussion into the narrative, which follows, follows the Jewish war. So it's very, it's very interesting that that happens. Um, what's particularly interesting about it is um, that it's not, it, it's not the exact, language that Josephus uses in his own Testimonium Flavianum one of the one of the very provocative things about Josephus's statement is that at least in the Greek text that is extant in the manuscripts of the of the of the Jewish antiquities Josephus makes this statement you know he was the Christ period uh and this is this is something that scholars have taken great interest in for good reason, because Josephus is, is a Jewish, Jewish author, the priest turned general turned historian. And there's no, there's no good kind of historical reason to assume that he would have, he would have seen Jesus as, as the Messiah or a Messiah, but, um, just based upon the text of his that we have, um, (laughs) I mean, it's, it, it seems that he said that was the case. And, um, and Skidio's version of this, that's not that's not played up in the same way, which is interesting.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: another dichotomy that's interesting in deoxidio is that um the separation between the virtuous hebrew and the jew yeah I, I guess my question is where does this dichotomy like where's the end point of what where a hebrew ends and a jew begins like
2: we're in the cr- cr- chronology yeah, that's a really good question, and the answer is it's kind of fuzzy. So depending upon kind of what passage uh, you're looking at in the text or what metric you're using to measure it, you could say that the, the the Hebrew-Jew divide, as it were, sort of breaks between the Maccabees and the post-Maccabean period. That's one way that's reasonable to think about it, so that the Maccabees are associated with the Hebrai um, in Skidio and uh the udai later on uh, but then um the author also talks about uh you know talks about the, the infamous queen jezebel as a um as a jew or a, as a jewess and so you have udai that are located all the way back in israel's earlier history and so clearly it's not a the the, the chronological divide is not um super cut and dry at the same time you have josephus in the in the the last speech he gives to his countrymen in day scideo 5 15 and 16 where he's trying to convince them like don't keep resisting the romans because it's going to end badly for you he calls his listeners hebrai in that speech and so it's part of this um maybe sort of patriotic national colloquialism, like a way of speaking um, to, to Jewish contemporaries. Um, but so all that's to say that, that both chronologically and linguistically, the divide is not crystal clear throughout the work. And this is actually, I would say, something that is that, that, that should be expected when it comes to language that, um, that represents what we would call national and or ethnic and or racial identity. Um, the, the divide between the two is actually, is, uh, a- as I argue in chapter two, is more uh, ethical, moral, and evaluative than anything else. And so for De Scidio, um the idea is that the Udayi are um, basically faithless, impious, and not virtuous in ways that form a complete contrast with their ancestors, the Hebrews. And one of the one of the main points in chapter four, the, the, the chapter on Jewish historical decline, is that this kind of rhetoric was very common in the ancient Mediterranean world writ large. I would say it's it's fairly common in world history and it was very common in the Christian thought of late antiquity. And so you have authors like Ephraim and Epiphanius and Eusebius and, you know, all of the, all of these Christian authors sort of saw a, you know, saw a similar qualitative difference between the Hebrews and the Jews, if they made that distinction. And so know uh, in a number of, a number of scholars have written about this um, better, better than I have. So Aaron Johnson is an example. Um, Christine Shepardson in her, in her work on Ephraim, the Syrian, has talked about it. Um,
1: and applying, um, applying a, uh, it, it seems like pseudo Hegesippus applies a Greek and Roman hist- histori- histori- historiographical term to the Hebrew, which is called exempla. Uh, could you just please unpack what exempla, how it functions?
2: Um, yeah. So the Latin term exemplum or the the plural exempla refer to, I mean, it is basically like our word examples in a lot of ways, but yeah. Um, <clears throat> It's also closely associated with with something that classicists call a discourse of exemplarity. And in particular, there's a Roman discourse of exemplarity that becomes very prominent in ancient Latin literature and in the ancient Roman cultural milieu writ large. And so the the discourse of exemplarity is a discourse wherein um, exempla from the ancestral past, which is to say, Uh, sort of famous stories and the heroes that act in them become these points of reference for thinking about and talking through and debating everything from ethics to politics to philosophy and economic policy um, to religion. You know, how, how do you know what's noble and ignoble? How do you know what's right and wrong? How do you know what it is to be Uh, You know, brave or a coward or patriotic or unpatriotic. And for the Romans, the way that they tended to answer these questions was to say, well, look back at this character and this thing he did or she did this one time that embodies this virtue or this vice. And they would use, and this was sort of like the Roman benchmark for that idea or that moral value. Um, And so that's. That's something that scholars call the the discourse of exemplarity, and prominent prominent scholars writing in this recently include Rebecca Langlands at the University of Exeter and, and Matt Roller um, at the Johns Hopkins University. They, they, they both wrote books on this subject in 2018. Um, so De Excidio uses the term exempla uh, a number of times and uh, and it, it, in a number of places. Uh, The term exempla is being used in a character's speech within the narrative, and the character is referring to biblical heroes, which is to say figures of the the Christian Old Testament as exempla, uh, as examples that exemplify something. So, for example, when Josephus um, and his comrades after the Battle of Jotapata, which which occurred in 67 CE, but after the Battle of Jotapata, they 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 find themselves in this cave, and they end up having an argument. And this is a famous argument um, where Josephus is, Josephus is thinking about uh, capitulating to the Romans, about giving himself up to Vespasian, who said, um, you know, give yourself up, come over, and we won't kill you. And Josephus's comrades are incredulous that he's even considering this. And they say, uh, how could you even think about doing that? You know, don't be a coward, be a patriot, don't be impious, be pious. Um, And they say, they give the example of Saul, who famously killed himself rather than be captured by the Philistines in the biblical record. And then Josephus responds, and he says, he, he calls Saul, um, uh, uh, an egregium agri- exemplum, uh, a famous example of someone to whom the grace of God was lacking. Um, and so he says Saul's suicide is actually um, a great example of what not to do in a situation like this. Like you don't commit suicide because in that case, Jose- in this case, Josephus's argument is that suicide is highly impious and is something that, that God does not approve of. And that Saul's suicide provides an example of um, of why not to do this. Like Saul finds himself in a really bad situation, makes a really bad decision. So it's a it's a negative example, something that teaches us what not to do. Um, so the 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 premise of of my book is that. Um, The biblical figures that appear in De Excidio, which most often appear in speeches made by characters within the narrative, function as exempla in the same way that all of the the many ancestors of the Romans functioned for rhetoricians like Cicero um, as exempla. So that's that's where exempla comes from.
1: And Exidio is littered with uh, mentions of uh, biblical figures from the Hebrew Bible. I guess my next question is that uh, how much of Pseudo-Hegesippus' uh, exemplar uh, characteristics, how much of that is received knowledge from previous ex- exegesis of the Hebrew Bible, or and how much of that is his own, I guess, productive, creative work.
2: Okay, uh, David, here, here you've hit on a really, really interesting question and kind of a tough one, um, especially because the author does not explicitly engage with his, um, shall we say, hermeneutical and exegetical interlocutors uh, in as much as he had them. Um, at the same time, some of the some of the interpretive moves the author makes are um, are are common in in ancient Christianity. So, for example, in the prologue, when he mentions um, when he make when he makes a reference to this prophecy in Genesis forty nine ten, where the the scepter shall not depart from Judah, which is you know Christians read this as a prophecy that. Um, a, a ruler of Israel would come from the tribe of Judah and Christians associated that prophecy with cr- Jesus Christ. So this is, this is something that Eusebius and a number of other Christian authors um, had referenced before Pseudo-Hedgesippus does. So there he's falling in line with a Christian reading of scripture. And of course, all of the biblical episodes that the th- this author is talking about, um, at some point he learned how to kind of read and interpret these biblical texts in this way. So in the sense that uh, education and intellectual formation constitutes a a kind of tradition, which is to say a a, a passing on in the sense of traditio, um, the Latin term. So in that sense, Pseudo-Heducippus will have, you know, kind of learned a lot of the, a lot of the, the 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 readings that he that he provides or or implies at the same time the way that pseudo pseudoejacipus is using his old testament is relatively unusual within ancient christian literature especially literature of the 4th century and before um, inasmuch as the author is treating his Old Testament as a history book. And so he's reading in this, um, in this kind of historical manner, which, uh, historically scholarship might've associated with what's called the literal school of interpretation, which is, which is, has been linked to Antioch. So there's this Antiochian school, which is opposed to the Alexandrian school, which, uh, tends toward, um, it tends toward allegorical readings that that's, that's been shown to be a little simplistic, but anyway, so the author's treating the old Testament as a history book. What's really interesting about it is that the author does relatively little, uh, theologization. So there's, there's not a lot of Christology, um, kind of drawn out or pushed onto the old Testament text. However, you're inclined to view it. There's not a lot of, um, what would be called mystical or spiritual or again, allegorical reading, there's not a lot of uh, practical emphasis. So almost never does the author, you know, take an old Testament text and say anything that has anything to do with the Christian life or the operation of the Christian church, which um, in terms of the genre of De Xcidio is of course, very, very natural. Like it's hard to imagine how, how you could easily make that jump from a work that's from a historical work like this to, you know, this is how Christians should act at the same time. It's interesting because very few authors do that kind of writing in, in the, in the ancient, uh, within the ancient Christian context. Um, and so one of the overarching, Points of the book is to is to point out that De Excidio is value, valuable for our understanding of ancient Christianity because the author is doing something that is so, in many ways, unusual within ancient Christianity, which is to say, writing a kind of classical sounding historiography, you know, not doing theology, not doing dogmatics, not doing doctrine, just doing history. And so he treats, you know, when he mentions Old Testament figures, which get mentioned a lot, they're, they're just, they're treated as historical figures, usually being remembered by characters within the narrative. Um, so anyway, that's, and the, the last thing I'll say here, David, is that um, it does seem that a lot of the readings that De Excadio provides for the biblical stories and characters that he mentions are not unprecedented within earlier Christian tradition. Um, so he, he's he doesn't seem to be totally out in left field. At the same time, we do find a lot of what appear to be very, very original, which is to say kind of unusual presentations of biblical characters and episodes, whether that's in the choice and framing of an episode or character um, or in, a, in an evaluation thereof. So I'll give one example. So... Um, in Josephus's, in his final speech in De Scudio 5, 16, 1, where he's talking to the Jews, telling them not to resist the Romans, he goes through this really long list of biblical exemplars, the longest list in the work. And at one point, he, he's talking about how all these biblical characters conquered through faith. And there you can see a sort of, it, it, it's, it's an easy link between that list and Hebrews 11, which is all about faith, Pistis or Fides in the Latin And he talks about how David um, conquered at one point through his union with Bathsheba. And so the author has Josephus present David's... uh, infamous sort of affair with Bathsheba as, as a kind of, as a, a mark in the wind column for David's career. Whereas, you know, basically every, every reader of the, of the old Testament or the Hebrew Bible um, in antiquity and today recognizes the Bathsheba episode as a low point in David's career. Uh, and yet pseudo Josephus has Josephus presented as a, um, as as a win like literally as a win um uh, he uses the 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 verb winko. so like david won when he did this um and so that's that that's an example of uh, of a reading of a biblical passage that is maybe it was inherited so there are a few works of late antiquity that also go there Um, But it's also, it's pretty original. And so it's very clear, whatever else one wants to say, it's very clear that the author of Excidio was very comfortable dealing with the biblical material and was certainly capable of generating and articulating original readings and formulations vis-a-vis biblical tradition. Um, But it's an important question. So thank you.
1: And was Dixitio influential subsequently in Christendom after it was written?
2: Oh man, uh, this is this is this is maybe the the question for an interview like this, David. I'm glad you asked it. Um, and so, really, the, the, the expert here is is Richard Matthew Pollard, um, whom I mentioned before, um, and another a number of other people uh, have written on Dixitio's reception as well. So the German scholar Heinz Schreckenberg um back in the in the 80s did a lot of work on this De video was incredibly influential starting already in late antiquity but throughout late antiquity and the middle ages um, De video gets read and copied and cited all over the place by prominent authors like uh, the venerable Bede, like isidore of seville um, The number of manuscripts of De Excidio that exist in itself is a testament to how wildly popular this text was in the Latin Middle Ages. Um, And so I I, I have down something like 80 uh, manuscripts that I list in the book here. Um, But the list at present is up to is, is moving towards 200 um, manuscripts and manuscript fragments of Dei Excidio that exist. We're still, we're still, you know, we're still actually finding manuscripts and and parts of manuscripts uh, as we, as we search for them. There's no comprehensive list, um, but this is, this is something that, that Richard Pollard and his, uh, and his student Felix um, Probon are, are working on. Um, so the manuscript tradition and the, the, the number of authors and the type of authors in which Dave Skidio, um, makes, makes an appearance. People cite him, um, people, this, this was a widely read text and it seems to have been enthusiastically read and it was, it was copied. So it, and it was very, um, yeah, very important for for later later Christian readers, um, and and a lot of times it was associated with the with the wider Latin Josephus tradition, by which I mean the Latin translation of the Jewish War, the the actual translation of that work, which seems to have appeared in the fourth century. We don't know who did that, and the Latin translation of the Jewish Antiquities, which was produced under the under the supervision of, of Cassiodorus in the sixth century. Um, and so you, you'll have manuscripts that has De Excidio with one or both of these works in it as well. Um, and so, uh, Pollard has, has an essay on this, um, and, and the title is it's like Flavius Josephus, the most influential classical historian of the middle ages or, or, or something like that. And he makes this point just based upon number of extant manuscripts that the, the, the Josephus tradition represents the most influential historiographical tradition from, from the classical age among medieval readers. And so pseudo Josephus was part of that. Um, so, uh, Pseudo-Hegesippus also is is an early and a very important voice um, for for articulating the a a Christian supersessionary understanding of history, which is to say the sort of the the the, the, the Christian historical theological understanding um, of Jews and Judaism, which sees Jews as the sort as the Descendants of the ancient Hebrews and I- Israelites, who sort of gave up their inheritance when they rejected Jesus, and were in turn rejected by God, which is why Jerusalem was destroyed. That that Christian understanding, which is which has been very common from antiquity to today, um, was articulated more forcefully in De Excidio than in any other text up to that time, um, and so that combined with the fact that de Excitio was was manifestly copied and read often by um points points to the influence and the importance of this text historically so yes is the shorter answer very
1: so you would say that de eccidio was a huge contributor to christian anti-semitism
2: uh, well, so I, I would want to make a different. I would want to make a distinction between anti-Semitism, anti-Semitism, and anti-Judaism, and I would also want to make a distinction between um, even anti-Judaism and supersessionism. Um, but, but yes, pseudo Hegesippus made a made a massive contribution to what can be considered the anti-Jewish interpretation of history that came to be a, a Christian commonplace already in late antiquity um, and so I, I outline this in, a, in an article called writing the Jews out of history which appeared in church history a couple of years ago uh, the journal church history um, but this book is also one of the one of the big kind of things that that this book is designed to show is um, is in detail how De Excidio, um sort of Contributes to this, uh, this this piece of the history of thought, um, if you will.
1: And is there any evidence of uh, Deixitio's influence reaching beyond the the Catholic world and into either, ortho- or what later becomes Orthodox or Protestant?
2: Um, y- Yes. I mean, the, when de, the, 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 distinction between Catholic and, um, and, and, and the, the various brands of non-Catholic is it, that, that distinction doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work in the fourth century when De Excivio is written. And it's, it's always complicated. Um, but so, so, I guess another way to think about it is, so De Excidio um, remained a part of Latin reading Christendom for 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 most of its life. Um, the, The I mean, De Excidio itself never seems to have been translated as such into another language until the early modern period when it finds its way into French and German and Italian. Um, and some of these contexts would likely have been Protestant by that point or, or proto Protestant maybe. Um, De excidio was definitely read by, by, by Protestants later on. Um, and so, starting in the early modern period, De Skidio, as with as with Josephus, um, you know, r- remains remains an important work in both Catholic and non-Catholic Christian circles. Perhaps the most interesting trajectory of De Skidio's historical influence is the way it makes itself into the Jewish milieu and then back into Christian milieus in Semitic languages. So Excidio is the most important source for an early 10th century work called Sefer Yosippon, which is a work written in classical Hebrew, which retells the story that De'Escidio was trying to retell, which is, you know, the story told in Josephus's Jewish War, but now, from a Jewish perspective, and it being written in Hebrew, it was written for Jewish readers. Um, so this text is, is, is exceptional. This is actually the text I'm writing um, my next book about. But So, so, so De Excidio was the, the most significant and the most um, quantitatively, the most uh, deeply used source by Sefer upon. Um, and so there are places where it kind of just gets translated into the Hebrew, but then that Hebrew text becomes the basis for, um, Christian Arabic translations, which make their way into translations in Ge'ez or classical Ethiopic. Um, so my, uh, my, my colleague, uh, Yonatan Binyam. Uh, with whom I went to graduate school, he wrote his dissertation on this topic. So he's an expert on the the Hebrew Sefer Yosipan and and its transformation into um, into Christian, Christian Coptic, Arabic, and Ethiopic. Um, and so and so Skidio's sort of broad storyline and some of its language and ideas and what have you they get spread a little bit, a little more broadly in that way through the accidents of textual transmission and, and translation. Um, but the Bideic Skidio in itself, as a sort of, as, as a block text, um, w- remains in the, in the Latin Latinate sphere for the most part. Um, but that's not to say that it was only a only a Catholic text historically, so
1: my next question is in terms of modern translations, if one wanted to read Dixitio, just say in English, could one go to just say Amazon and get a copy
2: uh no that, so the uh Translations into any modern language don't really exist. Uh, so Dominique Esteve's 1987 French dissertation contains a French translation of the first four books, which is, is pretty well done. Um, but that's, it's an unpublished dissertation. It's very difficult to access. There actually doesn't exist an adequate English translation of Deix um at all. So uh, Wade Blocker, who is uh, kind of an, an amateur reader of Latin, produced a Latin translation of the text sort of uh, for fun, is one way of saying it. Um, and this got put online in 2005 by by Roger Pierce. And so you can find that translation online. Um, so that translation provides access Basically, to what pseudo hegesippus says, um, it 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 can't really be cited. It's not like if you look at it next to the Latin, it's not it's 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 you, you can't use it to do any real kind of close textual reading. But at the same time, like you you can go through it and. It it tells you basically it, it it shows you what what De Excidio is what it's about. So both the format of the text and the, the nature of the translation make it sort of difficult to to sled through um, because it a lot of the times it, it it almost looks like someone sort of copied and pasted it into Google Translate and like that's what you that's what you get it's 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 highly literal it's a little bit wooden. Um, at the same time, it's, it's useful because it's the only thing that the non-Latin reader has. And even if you're reading the Latin that, uh, I mean, it takes a very long time because De Excidio's Latin is not, is not simple and easy in the way that, that certain Christian Latin texts from that period are. So um, I've, I've, emailed briefly with, with David Hunter who edits the Fathers of the Church series by Catholic University of America Press. Um, and so I, I tentatively anticipate producing an English translation of De Excidio within the next uh, decade or maybe maybe even half decade. Um, but yeah right now the text is not particularly accessible which is which is unfortunate.
1: So before we go, we usually like to ask our guests just um, what upcoming projects they have. But before I ask you that, uh, I guess the last question I have about this work is what what did you find most surprising during your
2: research? Mm. Yeah. So I guess um, I mean this, and this this takes me back a ways, but. What I found most surprising was just the the basic answer to my research question, which I mentioned mentioned a couple of times in the introduction, and that is, um, what are the differences between the way that biblical figures appear and are used in Josephus's Jewish War versus De Excidio, and what does that mean? Um, so when I first asked that question, I hadn't, I hadn't, you know. I hadn't surveyed De'Escidio and counted all of its mentions of biblical characters, and I did not realize that the text um, contains mentions of biblical characters way beyond what we find in Josephus's Jewish War. Um, And so that that surprised me, but it also made me very happy because it reinforced a conviction that I already had, which was that De Excidio is not the same as Josephus's Jewish War, and it can't be treated as a sort of paraphrastic translation of that work. It has to be understood as a as a work in its own right, even if it is drawing upon a literary source. Um, and this is something that I think readers of De Exchidio or or people who are kind of interested in De Exchidio, have had a hard time um, hard time accepting or putting into practice because it's when a work is largely based on a previous work there's something about the I it seems there's something about the modern scholarly imagination that just wants to to, to dismiss it as not original or something like that um, but one thing that the the presence of biblical figures in Deixis Skidio show is that the text is very original in very interesting ways.
1: And do you have any upcoming projects that you're working on?
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I have a bunch. Um, let's see. Um, so I've just I've, I've I'm finishing editing a volume with uh, Jan Willem van Henten and Michael Avios, uh, my my senior colleagues um, on the, the, the title is from Josephus to Yosepon and beyond. And so that, that, that's an edited volume with sort of a number of state of the art essays on, um, Josephus's Greek text and Sefer Iosipon, the Hebrew text I mentioned earlier and the reception of one or both of those texts in later literature. Um, so that's a, that's a big volume that should, I think, um, you know, shake things up in certain, certain sort of scholarly sub circles. Um, I'm, I'm also finishing a monograph on the Hebrew Sefer Yosipan and its use of De Excidio. So that's sort of a, in some ways, it's a natural sort of next step um, in terms of scholarly questions. And so that's a, that's a very interesting project as well. Um, and so those are, Those are two projects I've been working on of late.
1: So I think that's all the time we have for today. Carson, thank you so much for the interview.
2: Thank you, David.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?